Good afternoon, church. My name is Brett. I am pastor of this people. It's good to see all of you, but especially our guests. Welcome to Grace. We're glad that you chose to make us your church home for an hour today. We're going to continue with our series on the fruit of the Spirit and hope that it kind of marks you for all of 2019. So turn with me over to the book of Galatians. Book of Galatians, chapter 5, verse 22. And then we're going to look at Exodus, chapter 33, verses 12 through 23. The title of the message is Goodness, a Revelation. Goodness, a Revelation. Galatians 5, 22. But the fruit of the Spirit, Paul says, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. Exodus 33, 12 through 23. Then Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you yourself have not let me know whom you will send with me. Moreover, you have said, I have known you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, I pray you, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways that I may know you, so that I might find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. Verse 14. And he said, My presence shall go with you, and I will give you rest. Then he said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. For how then can it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not by your going with us that we and I, that we, and, that we, I and your people, may be distinguished from all the other people who are on the face of the earth? Verse 17, and the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken, for you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. Then Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. Then the Lord said, verse 21, Behold, there is a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock. And it will come about, while my glory is passing by, that I will put you in the cleft of a rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then, verse 23, I will take my hand away and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Lord, help us as we study your word, please. There are four things on this passage about which I'd like to talk to you. One, how it's important for us to desire his presence. Two, desire his ways. Three, detect his goodness. And four, make sure we are displaying his goodness to the world. Goodness is one of those things that's kind of, it's kind of hard to find a whole lot of information in Scripture about it. But Paul emphasizes Galatians uh, to the church at Galatia in Galatians 5.22 how important it is for us to develop this aspect of the character of God. Of the nine elements of the fruit of the Spirit, goodness is number six. And he defines it by distinguishing it, but he doesn't define it by other verbiage. He just says it's something that's in God and we need to have it. It's born of the Spirit. It's not something that is resident within natural man, goodness. And he says, in order for us to really represent God well, we must 
attain this character trait. Now you might say, there are people out there, Pastor, I know who are good. Well, our standard of G-O-O-D is pretty low. Pretty low. Most of the people we define as good do it every once in a while. They still are sinners and disobey God on a regular basis. They get right down to it. Most of the time they're thinking about themselves rather than others. The finest people we know on the planet still have issues with respect to malice and unforgiveness, envy. The kinds of things that Paul said represent the avarice of soul. And yet every once in a while they poke their head up out of the morass of junk and they do something nice and we call them good. Now, nothing wrong with that declaration as long as we understand what we mean by it and that somebody who is good is generally just not as bad as the most. Not as bad as the rest. Not as bad as the worst. So goodness, when we think of it in terms of its empirical definition, is the disposition of soul toward moral quality and excellence that reflects itself in the highest and upright conduct. All the time. Not just every once in a while. Not at Christmas. Not at New Year's. Not during Easter. Not when we feel like we found a mission to which we can give. Orphans need to be provided for. I'm grateful for all of that and it needs to be done. But goodness is so much more. So much more. But it's hard to find examples of it because most of the time when somebody is writing in Scripture about somebody who is really doing well, they describe them more as upright or righteous. And they don't use the adjective of good. So you've got to really look. You've got to get out your shovel and do some digging. And I think this passage upon which I'm going to preach probably at least defines it in its first mention better than any place else in Scripture. And this experience that Moses had was singular, unique. Nobody would have this kind of experience until Jesus appeared on the planet and took James and Peter and John up to the mountain at the mountain of transfiguration and changed before them. They saw something they'd never seen before. But still, the definition of what they saw was not given to them. Here we see some real distinguishing of what it means to serve God and to walk with God. What it means to be used by God and to be a partner with Him. Moses had an amazing relationship with the Lord. And because he put on his quote-unquote pants just like we do, if we walk with God like he did, maybe we can, at the end of our days, say, so do we. So do we. Backdrop to this passage. The people of Israel have come out of Egypt and God has done some amazing things in bringing them out. Miracle upon miracle, plague upon plague. Things happened to the Egyptians that didn't happen to the Israelites, though there was just a street between the two. Plagues over here of gnats and locusts and all kind of horrible things happening to their cattle. Uh, across the street, everybody was blessed. And no, the chicken didn't cross the road that day. 
The plague stayed over there. It didn't come this way. And the people of Israel were delivered without a sword from the most powerful nation on the planet at that time in that region of the world. M miraculous. Absolutely miraculous. And, and, and it's not that the people of Israel were, were blind to what was going on. They knew what was happening. And they saw all the miracles and they realized the Lord is really with this guy named Moses and obviously with us. We are being brought out and not only brought out by way of, of, of God's right arm being, being shed abroad, born to all of the Egyptians, but he's bringing us out with, with stuff. They got to ask. They didn't steal. Ask the Egyptians, can we please have some stuff when we leave? And the Egyptians were more than happy to give it to them because they had suffered so much they thought it was an offering to their God, meaning the Israelites' God, by giving them things. And so they came out with a mass of wealth, just stunning. So all these slaves that had nothing now had six figures in the bank. It was an amazing day. God had blessed them incredibly. I mean, literally. It was unbelievable what they were going through. Yet it was believable because they were living it. And here they come to the Red Sea, and they're all rejoicing in their deliverance. They're camped out there, and all of a sudden they see this dust off in the distance. Well, Pharaoh is, in the meantime, rethought his decision about releasing these slaves. He said, man, we ain't got nobody to do our work. We need to go get these fellas. Why do we do that? Why we let them go? And so he sent his, it says, his entire army out to get the Israelites. They then look at Moses and say, you are a horrible leader. You brought us out here to die, didn't you? We would have been better if we'd had graves in Egypt. At least we would have been able to eat onion soup, leek soup. But here you brought us out to die. What kind of leader backs up an entire people to a body of water they can't cross with hills on the other side and then an army? Didn't you think they would be coming to try to get us? What kind of leader? You're horrible. And this was their pattern. When Moses first came to Egypt, he had to first talk to the Israelites about his credibility. Then he would go to Pharaoh because he needed the elders of Israel to back him in his assertions. Let my people go. And so he went to the Israelites and they began talking to us and they, they, they were happy. Wow, this is amazing. God's going to deliver us. Great. He went to Pharaoh and said, let my people go. Pharaoh said, no. Miracles happened, things. And, and a plague came on Egypt. And, and the, the Pharaoh said, I know what your problem is. You all are lazy. We've always provided the straw for you to make bricks. Now we're not going to do it. You're going to have to go out and get your own straw to make our bricks. But the quota of bricks cannot be, cannot be de decreasing. You've got to produce the same amount. The Israelites, realizing they were now have to, having to work twice as hard to do the same job, looked at Moses and said this, you call this help? You've made our life harder. We don't need you. Go away. That's what they said to God's help. And we have no record that they ever said thank you to Moses. They didn't even buy him a Hallmark card. <laughs> Nothing from Moses. No record at all. All they did was complain, get mad at him at every turn. When things didn't go right for them, they looked at Moses and called him a bad leader. Here they were at the Red Sea. What kind of leader are you? You're horrible. Moses lifted up his staff, the Red Sea parts. It took a night for it to happen, but it happened. Israelites walked through on dry ground. 
come out the other side. The Red Sea is still open. There's been a pillar of cloud that has separated the Israelites from the Egyptians. And the Egyptians cannot reach them because of this huge pillar of cloud. As soon as the last Israelite steps on dry ground on the other shore, the pillar of cloud lifts and the Egyptians see this Red Sea wide open. Pharaoh says, go get them, boys. They go in, the Red Sea closes up, and all of their enemies have been vanquished. To which, though we have no record, I imagine many of those who called Moses a horrible leader said, about that leadership thing, can I like have a redo on that? Because like, you're amazing. I'm not quite sure what was said, but there had to be some apologies at some point. But this is the way they treated Moses regularly. Now Moses is on the mountain. He's talking with God about how to transform this people from a large family into a nation. And he's getting the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. And all of the restrictions and regulations and privileges that these people would have to do life well and to honor God and serve one another. And as he's there, he's there for 40 days. In the midst of those 40 days, the people of Israel get a little impatient. They're down in the valley. He's up on the mountain. Joshua happens to be with Moses, though a little bit lower in elevation. So he's up there on the mountain, but he's lower down. And then all of a sudden, Joshua runs up to Moses and said, Do you hear that sound down there? It sounds like war. There's a, there's a big thing happening in the valley. Now, Moses and God have been having a conversation about it. As the 40 days is ending, the Lord said, Oh, boy. Mm, my people, yeah. Well, they're down there. They've created a new God. They've, they've decided they don't want what I want for them. And literally, the people down there said to Aaron, who was Moses' brother, who Moses left in charge, we don't know what's happened to this fella, Moses. Called him a fella. We don't know what's happened to this fella, Moses. He'd been up there 40 days. Anything could have happened. So we need to appoint a new God for us as a people. 40 days. 40 days, that's all. Thank you very much for the amen. 40 days, that's it. And they had decided to go adrift from everything God had done for them. Joshua says, I hear war in the camp. He said, Moses said, no, they're partying down there. He runs down, they created a golden calf. They're worshiping. It's a bad day, bad day. Moses talks with God some more. God says, well, I think I'm going to kill him. I think I'm going to kill him all. Now, this is, this is in the same kind of moment as we read in Exodus 33, yet it's in the prior chapter. I think I'm going to kill them, yeah, because they just won't do right. No matter what I do for them, they won't do right. And I'm going to start over with you. Now, if something had not been wrought of goodness in Moses, I think he may have been tempted to take God up on that offer. Meaning, you mean these people that have never thrown me a birthday party? Never said thank you? All they did is try to overthrow my leadership all the time? You, you want to kill them? And you want to start over with me? I like the sound of the Mosites. Has a nice ring to it, doesn't Mosites, Mosites, Mosites. Lesser leaders would have said, good idea. I don't like them. They don't like me. I didn't ask for them. You sent me to them. Good idea. But not this version of Moses. Moses has grown. From the time when the Israelite was being treated poorly, when Moses was a prince in Egypt, being 
treated poorly by a taskmaster, being beaten. And Moses saw him, and he was feeling himself a little bit, realizing, I'm a, I'm a Hebrew, but I've got Egyptian power. I can make change for my people. He's feeling himself. And he sees this Egyptian taskmaster beating up on this Israelite. He immediately strikes him and kills him. God's testing Moses a little bit. You believe that kind of judgment needs to be given to everybody who does wrong? You think the hammer ought to fall anytime somebody disobeys? You think so? Moses has changed, having been out in the wilderness shepherding sheep for now 40 years since that moment. He had to flee Egypt as a result of his bad decision. He was a fugitive and wound up at Jethro's home, a, a man who would be a mentor to him as he wandered through the Israelite wilderness with, with the people. Uh, he wound up there shepherding Jethro's sheep for 40 years. And his, his, his heart softened. Moses says to God, Oh, Lord. Oh, Lord. Now, Lord, I, it, it, don't kill him. Because, like, you, you brought him out. But the nations will say he brought him out by his own right hand just to kill him in the wilderness. If you wanted to kill him, you could have done that in bondage. No, no, you don't want the nations to say that. And remember, this is your people. This is your people. They're called by your name. Please don't. To which God says, okay, I won't. Now Moses thinks he has changed God's mind. Sometimes God will speak like us, think like us, have a conversation like we would have a conversation in order for us to relate to him better and to see what is in our heart. Though he knows it, he wants us to see it. And in the process, make us think that he actually is one of us. But may I help you just a little? Whenever he asks you for information, he's not looking for it. When he said, Adam and Eve, where are you? It's not because he didn't know. When he's having a conversation with you about what needs to be done, it's not because he's looking for your counsel. Do you really believe you can counsel him? That there are thoughts he had? Oh! I hadn't thought of that. He's omniscient. Why does he do this? Because he wants us to see how deep we are or how shallow we are. And then begin to measure out his wisdom and input on the basis of that. And so with Moses, he lets Moses understand where he's coming. And now Moses is able to partner with God in a different way. God, don't get him. God says, oh, good enough, I won't. But... Yeah, about that going with you, not doing it. Mm -mm. No, no, no. I might kill him on the way, even though I'm not going to kill him now. On the way, I might kill him. So I'm not going with you. I'll send an angel, and, and then you all can, can vanquish all your enemies in the promised land. You'll have gold acquisition. The whole land will be yours, and, and it'll be great. I'm just not going to go with you. We men especially, but humanity is pretty much satisfied if we're successful. If we accomplish our goals, box checked, especially men. House for the children, wife, family, check. Food, check. Clothes, check. Tuition, 529 plan, check. We feel like we're really doing good if we can check off all these boxes because every part of us knows that we are to produce 
We're to take whatever we find in its raw form and produce it into something that allows for our people and the, and the folks that we have influence over to, to really benefit from. That's what we are as men. That's what we're supposed to do. And when we feel like we've done that, we feel like we've arrived. Good husband. Half check. <laughs> sort of, kind of. We feel like we've arrived. But spiritually... Goal acquisition should not be your ultimate. Presence should be. Rather than always seeking after God's hand, his provision, we better seek his presence first. Because if you arrive at your goal without him, you failed. Listen to me, anybody can achieve in this world. Ecclesiastes, Solomon said, in all labor there is profit. All we're talking about is degree. Everybody does something a little bit better than they did it last year. Everybody has maybe a little bit more than you did last year. And if you have a little bit less, you're on the way to getting more. Progress is, is something that we are geared to do as people in overcoming the obstacles and getting to a new spot. It shows that there's a drive and a, and a a, a, a real residual presence of God in people's lives that overcomes obstacles, and that's good. But it doesn't distinguish you as a Christian from anybody else. Not at all. What does distinguish you is if he's with you when you succeed. His presence should be something that you value. And I'm building an on-ramp to talk about his goodness, so stay with me. Moses was revealed some things about God that nobody had seen before. And there was a reason that he got to see it and nobody else did. And I'm convinced that we can find it in this passage. That his heart was literally building an on-ramp for him to see and experience God like no one had ever. And there were some pretty big spiritual heavyweights before him. You can't get much bigger than Abraham. Isaac, Jacob. These are central figures to the progress of redemption as it's outlined in Scripture. And Moses is about to experience something that none of them did. How? Because, number one, he would not be satisfied just with goal acquisition. Now, I don't want an angel. I mean, it's nice to be able to know that I accomplished my life purpose. I get that. But if I don't have you, I still failed. Everybody else will pat me on the back. They'll throw a party for me. They'll give me accolades. But you're more important to me than that. I need you. And what distinguishes me from every other leader who has been? Lots of folks have vanquished nations. Lots of folk have taken territory. I don't just want to be in that line. I'm not trying to set up just the people for me. I need you. And I need you to set me apart so the people understand that God is with us and he's with my leadership. I need you. What distinguishes me or us from every other people group is you, oh God. And so if you don't go with us, we're not going. Now the beauty is this. When you seek his presence, when he shows up, he brings his stuff. So you get his provision. But if you seek his provision without his presence, you may get his stuff because he's merciful. But if you don't get him, 
you'll be unfulfilled. Moses said, I want you more than I want your stuff. Number one on ramp. Number two, he said, show me your ways. (laughs) See, Moses was a little confused, as would we be, but Moses knew how to ask the right questions. He was a little confused because he was sitting there thinking, okay, you brought these people out, but then you're going to kill them. Uh, That don't make a whole lot of sense to me. So I know that you're God of all gods. There is no other God but you. And, and you know the end from the beginning. And you knew that we were going to be here, but you wanted to kill him after you brought So I need to know how you think if I am to represent you well, because I can't figure this out. So show me your ways so I can partner with you that when I speak, I speak on your behalf. When I think, I think like you. When I act, I act like you. And so that my leadership is not taken off the rack. It's tailor-made. Can't find it at Nordstrom's. You got to go to a real seamstress to make this work. That every time I come across an encounter that kind of befuddles me and, and it's a knot that I can't untie, I need your way to deal with it. Rather than just looking at the last circumstance I went through and saying, I'll use that one. I need your ways, oh God. Show me how you do what you do. So I'll know why you do what you do. Most people are just satisfied with his acts. Lord, just do me right and I'm good. But people who are satisfied with his acts are always looking for the next one. We hardly ever have enough. And we judge God by what he's going to do tomorrow. As being whether he's faithful or not. But people who love his ways are patient. They don't need him to do another thing. They're just happy he's working in their life. Even if there is nothing that is being produced that anybody can see, they can see character is being produced. And so they are happy. Lord, I don't need you to do another thing for me. I'm good. I just want you to know I'm pleased with the way you've dealt with me. It takes some maturity to get to this point because most folks are always trying to figure out the why. But it's... It's, it's, it's not wrong to figure out the why. You just need to ask the right why. The why that goes like this is the wrong why. Why'd you let that happen to me? Where were you when? Why did I wind up here? I trusted you and that occurred. And this bad happened. I can't believe you would let this. We ask these kinds of whys. And... There's a whole book devoted to those kinds of whys called Job. Job started off really good. God took everything from him. Save his life. Save his life. And Job fell on his face. And he said, blessed be the name of the Lord. What a man. He said, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed. Be the name of the Lord. That's a, if you have to go through junk, that's the way you start. Unfortunately, he didn't end that way. The next 37 chapters. How come? I'm a righteous man. I do good. I've been there for everybody. You can see, look at everybody who talks about me. I was righteous. I was good. I was good. I did. Why me? And in the 42 books that is Job, 
he never gets that answer. You won't either. Why? Because you don't want it. You really don't want it. If God has to tell you the truth about why you, crush you. We think we deserve so much better because we think we're so good. And again, our goodness is based on how not bad we are. And we think we are entitled to our life being paved with rose petals. And we think that blessing ought to occur to us because we're not Hitler. But how many times have you offended a holy God? How many times can you count? How many times you've sinned? Just in a day. Adam and Eve did not knock off a 7-Eleven. They ate from a tree from which they weren't to eat. And God said, if you do that, you will die. And they began to die that day. Do you really want God to answer the question of why is this happening to you? Let's ask the other why instead. God, I don't know why you treat me so good. I don't know why. I'm, I'm a repeat offender in your kingdom. Felonies just lined up in my past. How I've hurt people. How I've offended you. And that's not, that's just the stuff I've done. There's stuff in my heart. I got avarice and malice and envy. Unforgiveness. I, I can sometimes show up in church and nobody can see it, but you know it's there. Why do you treat me so well? Why? I don't deserve any of it. And it costs so much to get me so right. You sent your son. Why? Why did you do? Love makes no sense. It does stuff that confounds our intellect. It's not a two plus two equals four. Because when you think about it, the investment God made to get us, got him us. He lost in the stock market. I mean, we just aren't that great of a catch. We come at a deficit, and then for the rest of our lives, we're trying to make sure he doesn't lose more. That's all. Gain? That's a real plus. But how much do we really add to his kingdom? Only the people that are really working hard, that are trying to be above par, those are the people who are producing. Everybody else is just waiting water. He got very little of the good deal. We got all of it. We got all of it. He got us and we got him. Why? Why? That's the why we need to ask all the time. Because it will pave the way for you understanding and seeing his goodness. Detecting it. Because if you ask the other, You'll never see it because you think it needs to be given to you like you want it. If you ask the, the
the latter why of why have you been so good to me? You'll see his goodness every place. And I'm convinced that Moses got a picture that very few people ever get. Now, what he asked for as a result of being on a roll, and Moses was on a roll now, he thinks he's changed God's mind twice. Not going to kill him, and he decided, okay, I'll go with you. I never got to that part, but that's what he said. Okay, I'm going to go with you. We read that. I'll go with you. Moses said, oh, this is great. I'm really, I got some, I got some good stuff. Okay, now, show me your glory. Let's meet face to face. And you know, God isn't even mad at Moses for asking the question. He's just real practical. He says, well, <laughs> if that happens, you can't stay on the planet. So no, that can't happen because God needed him to be here. He had at least another 40 years of dealing with these people. So he had to be here. So God said, I can't let you see my face. But his face is not a prohibited sight. It's just not now. So Moses ultimately died. And when he died, he saw God's face. But that's what it, it costs to see God's face, that you got to die before you get there. And in doing so, he entered into his ultimate future. That's the ultimate, isn't it? I mean, when you die and go into his presence, that's it. What gets better? And there's a thing called eternity, which, which is hard for us to put our mind. We can understand almost God being eternal, and he is the only eternal. There's no other eternal. But time itself is one of those things that's hard to wrap our mind around because Eternity is not bound by time. I know that sounds doubly redundant and even oxymoronic, but it's not bound by time. It's that which always went that way in terms of beginning, and it's that which always will go that way in terms of future, and it's that which always is now. So eternity, by definition, can't have any bounds. So when you enter into it, even though we are not eternal, we enter into eternity when we die, and it's our beginning of forever. But whenever we get there, it is the ultimate future because eternity is just always there. So when you see the face of God, you enter into your ultimate future. Are you listening to me? God told Moses, I need you here now. So I can't let you see my face because then you enter into your future from which you can't come back into the temporal. He said, but I'll show you one thing. Because I've known you by name, because I'm really, really happy with our interaction right now, I'm going to show you my goodness. Nobody else has gotten this before. Nobody. And Moses says, Okay. Now, I'm preaching on goodness today, and I'm preaching how Moses got to see it. But remember, he got to see it because he wanted more. How much of God do you want? How much of God do you want? If you want all of his presence in your life, you may not ever get the fullness until you see him. But, oh, my goodness, what you will get on the way will more than satisfy you. Goodness was the leftovers 
He says, hide here. Get on this rock, and I'll pass before you, and I'll put you in the cleft of the rock, and my hand will shield you. And you won't be able to see my face, because you do, you die. But as soon as I pass on by, I'll proclaim my name, and I'll, I'll say what I do. I am compassionate upon whom I desire to give compassion, and I am merciful to whom I desire to give mercy. And the fact that you are breathing and in this room is evidence of his compassion and mercy because you are listening to this little black man talk to you <laughs> about his compassion and goodness and mercy. You still, he's allowed you the privilege of sucking up his air and using his resources and getting to this point where you could be better suited to worship him. That's how gracious and compassionate he is in that he hasn't judged you for eating from the tree from which you have, which you should not eat. Adam and Eve, and even in the difficulty they experience in disobedience, they lived 900 years. So we can say, well, God judged him. Yeah, but even in his judgment, there was mercy. <laughs> oh, he is so good to you. He said, I'll let you see my goodness as it passes by. And he said, you'll see my back. You'll see my back. If the, if the face of God represents our ultimate future and that to which when we enter, we can't come back, what does the back of God represent? Moses wrote the five books that we call the Pentateuch or the Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. First five books of the Bible. The last four, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, Moses lived through. He was there, except at the very end of Deuteronomy when he died. And obviously he couldn't write about his death. <laughs> Says he was buried by the angels of God, so somebody else wrote that part. But everything else, he wrote. But he also wrote Genesis. Now, the last part of Genesis, the very last chapter, happened about 340 years before Moses was born. And then you go backwards to the beginning of Adam, which is recorded history according to genealogies, and you have 2,500 years of history. Moses wrote Genesis. How did he know that stuff? Okay, the big stuff like Sodom and Gomorrah. That was one of those historically unique events. Everybody knew about Sodom and Gomorrah. But how did he know that when Adam and Eve sinned, that God came down to walk with them in the cool of the day. How did he know that? How did he know that when the Lord came to speak with Abraham and said, about this time next year, in Genesis 19, you're going to have a child. And Sarah was inside the tent listening. And she was so tickled by the idea because she believed it was impossible and that she was now 89 years old. She laughed at what God said. But when she laughed, it was in quiet. It was under her breath so that Abraham didn't even hear it. But God knew she laughed. Asked her, Sarah, why did you laugh? Oh, I didn't. <laughs> Don't lie to God. It doesn't work. <laughs> My point is, how did Moses know that? Those details are not the details that you just pass down from generation to generation. They get lost someplace. You, you remember the big... How did he know all the individual conversations that Jacob had with God? The ladder 
and angels descending and ascending. How did he know all the details of the conversations between Joseph and Potiphar and Joseph and the jailer and Joseph and the cupbearer? How did he know? Except that if the face of God represents the future, the back represents history. Can't prove it, but it sure does sound right. And in the process, God said, you're going to see the book of Genesis as a picture of my goodness. Because every time man tried to mess it up, I came in to fix it. Adam and Eve blew it. And I immediately came in to redeem their mistake. And promised them that I was going to make all mankind better. That the enemy would have his head crushed by a seed from the woman. Oh, and Jacob, who was the most unlikely candidate to be a, a purposeful, redemptive character. I mean, he lied and cheated all the time. <laughs> he didn't even get it till he was about 120. I mean, really got it. He didn't get it. And yet God moved through him, which ought to give all of you hope. <laughs> Every one of you hope. You know, the goal is to be really right, but if you're not, it doesn't stop God's goodness. That the book of Genesis has a lot of bad that happens in it. But through it, God's goodness was seen, and somehow he was able to bring a people out that he could redeem. I think Moses, for the next 40, writing down all of Genesis, and that God showed him his goodness through his redemptive history. You've got some history. How do you view it? Has it constantly just great at you? Everything that's happened is bad. Do you have unforgiveness? Stuff you can't overcome? Mad about this thing? Mad about that person? Or maybe the things you did and you lay awake at night thinking those horrible things that I don't want anybody to know are galloping. You hear the hoofprints where they are trying to overtake you and call you guilty once again. What does your past look like? I'm begging you. See the goodness of God. Because he has applied his mercy and grace to your life in ways like you can't even think. That you are sitting here today is evidence of his goodness. That bus didn't hit you yesterday. That cancer didn't come on you last week. There are so many things you don't know that haven't happened to you because he's had his hand on your life. And rarely, rarely have you been compliant. Rarely have you been compliant. But most people in this world would love your failure. Love it. Because it looks like God has been so good to you. And he has. Now you don't need to rewrite your history. You just need to redetect it. And now that you understand just a little bit more about how good God has been to you. How good have you been to others? Fruit of the Spirit. 
if, if you realize how good God has been to you, and he has been so good to Brett, so good to Brett, I don't know why he has been so good to me. And I have problems just like you've got problems. I have things for which I could probably say in my humanity. <laughs> Were you here when? D did you take a day off that day, God? How is this this way? We were intending to do good and it turned out bad. Where were I could have all those things. But I have trained myself to never let my emotions run wild or to let those words come out of my mouth and to take them, thought, take them captive in my brain. Whereby I say, Lord, I don't know how I got here. I deserve so much worse. And you decided to let your son suffer on my behalf. You'll never hear of an ungrateful comment coming from me. You'll never hear of me crying neglect on your part because you didn't show up when I needed you. I want you to know I'm grateful. And because he has been so good to me, it allows me to now have a foundation of what goodness looks like so I can have that as a fruit of the Spirit in my life. And begin history today so that tomorrow when I wake up, I've got something that somebody else can look at in my life and say, he's good. How good have you been to others? If you can't answer that question with an affirmative response, then you have a fresh start today to begin a new history. Never a bad time to make a good decision. He's treated you well. Freely you received, freely give. Goodness. Goodness. God is good all the time. I've wanted to use that in a sermon all my life. Let's pray. Love you, Daddy. Thank you for your goodness to us. Help us to inspire others because they see your goodness through ours.